All right, listeners, have you been in a room? I, this sounded like an ad. Like, have you? It's not. It's not an ad. Have you been at an event where there's a lot of people with Down syndrome? Like, not a handful. I think for me, I think for a lot of us who have children with Down syndrome, people with Down syndrome, siblings with Down syndrome, wherever you fall in the category of a relationship, relation to Down syndrome, it's often not a lot of people because I think it's one in 700 people in the United States is born with Down syndrome. So whenever that there's an opportunity, it is, I think it's some of my favorite moments of my whole life. Honestly, I think of like, like when there's buddy walks or on world down syndrome day, celebrating with other families, like at an event that's being put on by a local association. And then there's this last, this last spring, our family went to the national down syndrome society advocacy conference and it was a third of the people there had down syndrome and then coming up and this is relevant to this today's conversation is the national down syndrome congress convention and the first time i went was in 2000 and i don't know macy was nine she was born in 2008 someone did the math there for me and it was in sacramento and I just walked around and Josh and I were like, what is happening here? Everywhere you looked were people with Down syndrome. It was the best, the best, the best, the best. Convention is so good for a million reasons, but that's my number one love about it. So there you go. Let's get straight to it for shouting worth and shifting narratives for people with Down syndrome. Today, I'm very excited. I'm having a conversation with Jordan Coe from the National Down Syndrome Congress. Jordan's going to discuss with us the impact of the Down syndrome community working together, what we can do to make a difference, so much more, why the civil rights movement for disability is so important. This is a great conversation. I'm really thankful that he took the time to be with us today, and you're going to love it. Let's get straight to it, friends. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. This is for all the moms out there. If you're a mom and you're a listener, you're listening right now, this is for you. I want you to know you are a really good mom. And I'm not just going to say it, we're going to put it on a shirt. That's right. Right now, you can head over to theluckyfew.co and shop our new mom's collection, which includes a t-shirt that reminds you, and let's be honest, your kids, that you are a really good mom. You can also find other mama gear like Lucky Mama shirts and Lucky Mama hats. Head over to theluckyfew.co. Use discount code podcast for 10% off. That's only for podcast listeners. That's theluckyfew.co for all the mamas in the room. I know I said we're going to get straight to it, but before we get straight to it, we're going to take a quick little right-hand turn. I'm going to read to you a review um, from one of you incredible guests, and it says, this is from Monday HC, who says, each week, you all give me so much to think about. I deeply appreciate all the joys and challenges you share. I find myself nodding my head and laughing or crying along with you. Thank you for keeping it real and being narrative shifters. 
Mundy HC, thanks for listening. And thank you too for being a narrative shifter. Friends, if you're listening, you never left a review. And you've heard us say this every episode and you're like, oh, I got to do it. I got to do it. Just hit pause. Hit pause. You're already on your phone, most likely. Just leave a little review. And it really helps us. Um, It helps the podcast be seen. It helps people who are not sure about what it is to know what they're getting into here with us ladies. And it means so much to us. Your feedback really is something we treasure so much. So you can head up to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, leave your review, push pause, go do that, and then come on back. All right, friends, like I said earlier, I'm here with Jordan Coe, the executive director of the National Down Syndrome Congress and a disability rights activist who has spent his entire career working in the nonprofit sector. After learning of the challenges that people with disabilities face, he shifted his focus from developmental and organizational management to supporting the disability rights movement, one he considers to be one of the most important civil rights movements of our time. As a leader, he has guided the Disability Rights Legal Center and the National Down Syndrome Congress to continue to help people with disabilities reach their fullest potential. Jordan, I'm so, so grateful to have you on the show today. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. Thanks for having me, Heather. Really excited to be here as well. Yes, Jordan and I met for the first time in person at the National Down Syndrome Society Advocacy Conference, which we were we met on the Hill. We were, we were in a room together talking to our Congress people about making laws work for people with Down syndrome. So it's nice to see you here on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, it was great meeting you there. It was great advocating and getting to hear the stories and of siblings and self-advocates there in the moment. So um, always, always great to have that experience. Yeah, so fun. Um, okay, I actually want to start with, with something from your bio. I would love to hear from you about why you consider the disability right movement to be the most important civil right movement of our time. Yeah, you know, this is a question I get all the time because I am not a parent of um, a child with Down syndrome. So people are like, why why does this even interest you in the first place? Um, And I came to the disability community um, because a friend of mine um, who was a veteran experienced in hearing loss and really had a very difficult time. Um, once she once she had that disability in accessing services, understanding those services, all of that. Um, and this was a very capable, very smart, uh, very empowered person. Um, and so as the curtain mm-hmm. started to kind of get pulled back for me to see what that was like, what I found out was that for people who don't have some of those advantages structurally, there's so much working against families and individuals and people with disabilities. Um, and that the way that our systems and the way everything is kind of constructed to operate is really designed to work against them in the first place. Um, And so people don't really think about disability rights as a civil rights movement, but it is. Um, It's just one of the youngest civil rights movements of our times. Um, And Mm. the very sad passing of Judy Heumann recently um, is an example of one of kind of those disability rights activist warriors who was out there in the community protesting, um, putting together amazing programs when she was younger, Camp Jeanette. If you haven't seen Crip Camp, it's a movie that you have mm-hmm. to go watch on Netflix. Um, but the, the protest work that they did in New York, in San Francisco and other places is just incredible. And, and so it's a young movement that is still coming together. Um, and there are a lot of kind of, there's not a lot of cohesion between a lot of the different disability organizations. And I think that's really the next big step for us mm-hmm. um, as a community to, to get the impact of where we'd like to see it. 
It is so fascinating because it because it is so young, and there's been a lot of I I have seen, and if you look historically, like a little bit of writing coattails too. You know, like the in with the different civil rights movements and how disability doesn't discriminate by race or gender or any of the other civil rights movements we see happening. Disability falls under every category. And if you live long enough, you will most likely fall into that category. So it's going to touch you in some way. And so I, I hear what you're saying, and it makes so much sense how important it is as a civil rights movement. Um, and I also feel from the little place that I stand in that movement, it just is not seen as such at all. It feels like there's a, like people like you doing the work you're doing and so many people in the space, there's like this clawing at people, at, you know, like at society to say, this is important for everybody. This isn't just for my kid with Down syndrome. Like this movement for disability rights is so important. Please see it that way, right? Like shaking people, like you've got to see it this way. Do you feel that way in your advocacy work? Yeah, absolutely. And and part of that is just how the ADA was written and, and kind of how the ADA came to be, which was that, um, you know, there were a lot of concessions and things that changed in that. And it's a really litigious piece of litigation or a litigious piece of policy. Mm -hmm. The way that it is designed is that Everybody accepts the premise of accessibility um, in all ways that are under the umbrella of that. But the only way to get access to that is then to actually take somebody to court to enforce it. Um, mm. and it's very rare that our laws are kind of so uniquely centered on using litigation as that piece. Um, and I think that, that that in and of itself makes disability advocacy really intriguing in that mm. people view it a specific way. I don't, I don't know if you remember the Anderson Cooper interview. It was probably like eight or nine years ago now, maybe even longer, dating myself. Um, but, you know, he did the interview where they talked about kind of the, the drive-by ADA lawsuits for, for restaurants, when in fact the rules are that the restaurants have to be compliant in the first mm -hmm. place, right? And so when people think about disability, there's this unique lens that kind of comes with uh, comes with that. And so at the same time, then all these people that live in this space, and, and I was one of these people, right? Until I was exposed um, personally, you just don't see it. It's very ableist in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, everything seems to be designed and built for you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's usually because it is, and you don't stop and think in those processes, oh, well, how, like, how is this affecting other people? What is it like when, mm -hmm. what is it like when someone actually has to go around to the back of the restaurant and come in through the kitchen just to be able to get in, right? right. Um, and, and, you know, all of the steps in, in that, most people just, it's, it's just not part of their day-to-day -day thinking yet. Yeah, definitely. And also seeing how so many of the issues that ADA is saying need to be fixed, right? Like even curbs on sidewalks, things like that, how that benefits Moms pushing strollers, delivery people. And and just when you start to think, when you look at like the most marginalized person or you work, start with the most vulnerable, make life work for that person, how that trickles out to everybody and how everybody's going to benefit. The majority of people are going to benefit when we adjust society to work for the most vulnerable. Um, it's kind of how I see all of that, but it's a hard, it's a hard sell if you don't know it, right? Like you can't know what you don't know. And it's a hard sell if it's not personal. Yeah. And, and there's so little kind of data on some of those things, because mm. it's not just, it's not just, you know, and obviously the curb cuts and strollers and access, that's all very simple and should be, should be relatively obvious to all of us, because at some point, 
everybody's had, you know, a, a sprained ankle or whatever that looks like. Um, but, you know, when we talk about inclusion within the Down syndrome community and education and the value of what it's like to have somebody in your classroom that is not like you, that is not exactly like everybody isn't exactly the same, understanding that the empathy, the learning process, teaching somebody else something to help you learn or to help you understand how to learn. All those things are really important, too. Um, and we don't have great data or mm -hmm. great evidence to kind of back up what that is. But I know that you and all the families that I've met have seen that happen with their friends, with their own families in their classrooms. We know it works. Um, and I think that that's the, the want to shake people moment <laughs> where it's like, you know, I, I, we understand why you're advocating for your child or what you think is best for this classroom, but you're not using a wide enough lens mm -hmm. here to understand that, you know, you're, you're really narrowed in on their grades or being able to learn a specific thing. And school is really about a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of access is about a lot more than kind of whatever the individual thing is, kind of like you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think the heart of it, because you can think about policy, and I'm I am very much um, in the the storytelling, the personal, the heart. Data is not something that I'm very great at, and like in the, my advocacy lane is like personable. Tell me your story, right? So, and even on the at the uh, or in DSS event in DC where we met, there's all of these like policy minded people. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to do what you do, but it's also so important. I see all of that. Like when I think of ADD, ADA and I think of policy, I think of IDEA, all of that, that's all good and fine. But what I see needs to happen is people need to view disabled people as fully human. And until that happens, then the policies are only going to get us so far, right? Like you can demand or you can say the law says my kid can be in your classroom, but I don't want that. I just want everyone in the room to see him as fully human. You know, like that's that's where I'm after and how do we get there? And I don't know that any of us know the answers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think if we figure that out, then we can, we'll, we'll put it to yeah, work. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Why do you think you had mentioned that there's not a lot of data for how, for example, inclusion is benefiting everybody? Why do you think that is why do you think it's such, such a lack of data yeah that's a it's a, a good question i think it's because part of it is hard to measure i think okay. you know i don't know if you are familiar with angela duckworth's book on grit you know that's another example where it's very there there are things sometimes that are not obvious and tangible mm -hmm. so it's easy to say okay i know that you scored an 88 or a 72 or 100 on this test and so we have this kind of education system and, and both my parents are teachers and, and I, I'm a huge advocate of our education system overall, but we have an education system now that's very like test and metric based and everything. They want to kind of strip out kind of to what you were speaking about, the humanity around a lot of these kids, whether they have a disability or not, and just kind of turn them into a test score and a number and whatever that looks like. And so if it's not a study that's fitting directly into that bucket, I think, A, that that works against it. And then B, I think it's just really hard to measure because mm. um, there are so many factors that go into what make, what makes our kids and what makes our communities so special and how they grow up and what they learn from. And so how do you how do you strip that out of there um, in some of those environments when also simultaneously people are pushing to exclude? Mm. Right. So it's not only not only is it a hard is it hard to measure, but the number of instances to be able to measure it are probably fewer than there should be mm -hmm. because there's such a mentality within school districts of, well, inclusion is not our starting point, right? Our starting point is you have to work as hard as you possibly can 
to get whatever you want from inclusion. And we're going to make you hire an attorney or an advocate or bring someone with you. Um, and we're going to make it as difficult as possible along the way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the most frustrating parts for me to see um, when, when that's the mentality to begin with. Yes. Yes. And amen. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. <laughs> we get that's a whole different podcast <laughs> like will you come back and this is not even even already what we've talked about is not even totally what we were planning on talking about so i appreciate you um sharing your views and opinions and experience and all of all of your advocacy work so far okay let's jump over to the national down syndrome congress ndsc so for those who are new to what the NDSC is. Um, can you share a little bit with our listeners about National Down Syndrome Congress and its mission? Yeah. We'd like to think of, you know, our work is to improve the world for people with Down syndrome in every way that we think is that possibly can um, and allowing them to kind of reach that fullest potential uh, mentality in, in every way. Um, and so the way we talk about it is we really divide our work into kind of three spaces. Um, the first is policy and advocacy, the place where we met. Um, we think it's really important that that voice in those settings, especially for leadership from a political perspective, those voices have to be part of that. The, the money, the efforts, the work of our government has to be protecting individuals with disabilities, particularly those with Down syndrome. Um, but that those voices can get lost in the shuffle and that we need to be there. So about a third of our work is you know, essentially writing our own policy statements on just about everything that possibly affects a person with Down syndrome, um, whether it comes to kind of healthcare, whether it comes to housing, whether it comes to employment, whether it comes to education, both post-secondary or, um, or primary school, secondary school, et cetera. Um, we have a position on all of those and we're constantly kind of meeting with folks on the Hill um, federally. And then we also have a grassroots manager who's making sure that we're teaching other individuals with Down syndrome and their families how to advocate for themselves, that it's important that this isn't just happening in Washington, D.C. It's happening in wherever your local capital it is. It might be happening in your local school board. Um, it could be happening in your city council. Um, and so we have to be able to know how to tell our stories. Like you were saying earlier, Heather, people have to understand the power of what those stories mean, the influence that that can have. And so it's a big commitment of ours organizationally into something that honestly, you know, doesn't have doesn't doesn't have a lot of kind of support from a, a payout perspective. There aren't grants that that are funding kind of large scale policy work. Um, there's there's no kind of monetary hook on the other side of that. But it's an area that we believe is really important for us to do our work. Um, so the second third then is our convention, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. But that's kind of the signature moment of the National Down Syndrome Congress for. 51 years now, we've had our conference um, all across the country, um, and we'll, we will continue to do so. And there are anywhere, as many as wow. 5,000 people have attended our convention. Um, and we, you know, there's a, we like to say there's a little bit of something for everyone. Um, we have an educators conference for teachers. We have 110 to 120 workshops for parents. Um, we have our youth and adult conference, which is we're going to have 400 self-advocates participate in that this year, which is just absolutely incredible. Um, we have a siblings conference that is explicitly just for siblings to come into, um, get to meet each other, get to have a safe space to talk to each other about that. Um, we run an advocacy boot camp. We have dances. We have a, a fun run. We, we do a little bit of everything over the course of four days and we kind of we squeeze it all. <laughs> we squeeze it all into one big hotel, or one big conference center. Um, and it's just 
you know, we, we like to refer to it as kind of the biggest family <laughs> reunion in, in the country because all these people come together and, you know, it's, I've heard so many stories. I think the most, the most powerful one that I, I've heard is um, from Nancy Lidikin, um, who is mm -hmm. uh, with Club 21 in Pasadena. Um, and she said the first time that she came to convention, um, they were there and there was an escalator that you basically had to go up in the hotel. Um, and the mother and child, the mother was having a very hard time getting her kid to get onto the escalator. And there was a mini meltdown in that moment that was happening. And I think we've all been around and seen that happen. But, you know, you see that happen in a mall or in a public space and everybody's just kind of stopping. And, and I think a lot of a lot of parents have experienced this where everyone is just staring at you and you're now feeling the entire pressure of trying to convince your kid to get on the escalator and do everything that you have to do. And, and there's all this pressure. And, and Nancy described it as it was the total opposite of experience for in that moment that six other parents came rushing over. They they helped in the situation. They said, oh, this is no big deal. Like the elevators over there. You can you can you can get your mm -hmm. like, try this, try this. Um, and she was like, I just knew I was in the right place when that happened, because that mentality of kind of recognizing people for, you know, being people, being human, like you said earlier, um, was the moment that we're able to create in that convention. And so there's so many people that have come and said that, you know, self-advocates speaking and being our workshop presenters is really important to us. That's been an absolute game changer mm. for some people because they come in and, and they're like, this my yeah, it's possible that that mm -hmm. my kid can do all these things. And and I I didn't think or I didn't know or I didn't understand before this. And this kind of opened mm. my eyes to it. Um and so that's what we're always hoping to kind of bring forth during convention. Um and the last sort of that is then taking all those lessons that we've learned kind of during those four days and figuring out how to replicate that and communicate those out into the community. So whether that is doing it through webinars, whether it's creating a toolkit, whether it's creating a resource on our website or going around and having a one day conference or speaking at different activities or to different groups. Um, it's kind of our commitment to say that this is the place that is kind of our incubator where we hear and see all the things that are happening. And, it's, it, and it is really amazing at convention because we are able to stay really in tune and in touch with what is happening within the community because of that. OK, what are we going to do about it then? Though? We can't just come together for four days. We have to be working on this all year long. Mm -hmm. Can we let's talk a little bit more about convention? You just explained a lot. And Nancy Lidikin is one of my favorite humans on the planet. Um, shout out to Nancy. And I remember my first convention somehow. Somehow I didn't know about it for my first eight years parenting. And I I would imagine that you hear that from people, right? Like, how how have I not heard about this? And even that we had the lucky few was already established. Like we were a we were our own little thing already. <laughs> I'm like, how did I not know about this convention? And I think the answer is because we're just inundated with so much information as parents. And we're just, I think, in those first few years, even just getting to the next thing in a doctor's appointment in school. And there's like that in front of your face that's so close to home that you are dealing with um, and navigating and needing support in that it's hard sometimes to look past that. But it is once I went, I described it as Down syndrome Disneyland, that it was just <laughs> like everywhere you looked were people with Down syndrome. And it's just, there's not a, there isn't any other opportunity to be around that many like-minded like similar life experience people that can, if your kid's refusing to get on the escalator in that scenario, you don't feel isolated. You feel community. And it's just such a beautiful, um, it's a really a beautiful opportunity. If you have the opportunity to go to convention for our listeners, I just can't recommend it enough. 
And there is, like you said, there's something for everyone and it can feel very overwhelming. I'll be honest as a, as an attendee, but I think even if you just go to be there, right? like even just being present, you know, your first time and doing the little things you can and then figuring out how to sign up. There's definitely the pros, it seems like, who like know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you guys are doing a good job on like you help us navigate that. But it is so great. All that to say, I am curious your favorite part of convention. What's the thing that you're like, I can't wait for this? Mm. So, I mean, part of it is what you just spoke about, where it is this community. Like, we we end up influencing not just the people that are in an attending convention, but everybody else around it. So everyone that works at the hotel, mm. all the restaurants that are close by, we're like, you know, and we get, we come in a little bit earlier and stay a little bit later to to prep and then, <laughs> and then unwind a bit at the end. But everyone that you talk to afterwards is like, you know, what was going on? <laughs> Who are all these people? And also, and I think more importantly, they say, I had no idea that they were capable of having a group of four yeah. self-advocates go to lunch together by themselves, pay for, order, do lunch. They, they said that, you know, that, that wasn't something that kind of ever was part of what I thought or expected from an individual mm -hmm. with Down syndrome, from what they've seen on TV or what they've heard or the limited experience that they've probably had. And so I think my favorite part is that, is that kind of light bulb moment, um, talking to the staff afterwards. You know, even at convention last year, which was my first convention, um, you know, everybody at the hotel staff was just, you know, it, it, they're appreciative of us being there, even though <laughs> we're appreciative of them doing all the work that they did. Kind of the the kind of inverse nature of that is is part yeah. of it. Um, but I would say that my favorite part is the youth and adult conference, um, where it is exclusively for just self advocates. So um, there we have a series of volunteers that help out there. If if you need extra support, there's extra supports that can be provided. Um, but it essentially is a day and a half or almost two days worth of a conference just for um, self advocates to be able to to talk about whatever they want to talk about. So. About mm -hmm. half of our presentations that are given there are done by other self-advocates. They're talking about where they go to college, where they work, things that they've done in their community, activities that they're part of, et cetera. Um, we have a, a lot of different fun activities that go on throughout youth and, the youth and adult sessions. And then there's a talent show at the end of it. And I think that's the, that is for anyone that's able to kind of see and participate in the talent show. It's a, it's a really fun moment where people get a chance to get up on the stage and be themselves and show whatever talents they have at whatever levels they have. And it's just, um, it's a lot of fun and a lot of smiles, um, you know, in that part of the conference in particular. It's so fun. My daughter, Macy, our oldest, is going to be 15. So it'll be her first year oh, attending, attending that session. And I, um, she's my oldest. And so I have tried real hard not to be a helicopter mom, but she also came to me medically fragile. So we've just got this thing together. So it's going to be great. I just uh, like this thought of dropping her off and just walking away. I guess it's the safest environment to do it. <laughs> it it's the, it is. It's the best test case. <laughs> for sure. For sure. That's good. A good test case. Um, okay. So this year, the com the convention is in Florida. Um, how many people are you anticipating? So we are in Orlando. We are already about 20% more in terms of registrations and hotel bookings than we were when we were in, um, when we were in Orlando in 2016, which was our largest wow. convention. Wow. We, we estimated, yeah. So we estimated there were somewhere between 4,500 and 5,000 people there that year. That includes volunteers, speakers, attendees, obviously families come, but you know, you might register and, and you register your daughter, but the whole family is going to be there. So for two registrations, there are actually five mm -hmm. people there. 
Um, so we know that there are more people that are attending. Obviously, caregivers that, that tag along. We're having a special grandparents event this year. Um, so our estimation right now is that we're going to probably be between six and 7,000 people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we've got 150 to 200 people on our wait list waiting to get into the hotel right now. So we're working on trying to set up some other opportunities that are at hotels nearby, but make sure that people still have great access to the convention. Um, so we still are seeing registrations roll in every day, which, wow. which um, is incredible and amazing. And we, we'd love to see everybody there. Uh, but it's going to be it's going to be big and it's going to be exciting. Um, is there a max? Are you like, OK, with this, we are no longer accepting. I, <laughs> <laughs> so I and I would say, you know, since I have come to the part of the reason that uh, that I was attracted to working for the National Endowment Center of Congress was this convention in particular, obviously the size and scope of it to start with. Um, but you know, I'll say it here cause I say this internally and I say this in any meetings that, that I'm at. So now a lot of people hear this, so they'll have to hold us accountable to it. But I want our convention to be something that is like 10 or 20,000 cool. people that are in attendance that when we are in a city, it's th that feel that I talked about where the restaurants and the businesses and everybody around it have to think differently because of what they've experienced. That's what we want to be able to mm -hmm. take into some of these communities because it can have such an impact and have such an influence. And we don't want there to be families that like, like yours or like me. So, you know, having worked for seven years in the disability community, um, having had two board members that um, of the organization I was with um, that had kids with Down syndrome, both I think have attended convention historically. I still had never heard of it. Um, you know, I, that's what we want to change. We want people to know about the single disability convention. We want people to know it's family oriented, that they have an opportunity to be there. Um, so the short answer is uh, I have I have restricted i have said that there are no restrictions <laughs> in terms right. of registrations um which which has been met with with smiles but also a little bit of consternation <laughs> sure sure because there are the logistics of enough hotel rooms or yeah like being able to accommodate that many people so um but but listeners you heard it here absolutely register if you haven't yet and make it happen the avis family will be there as well and we will be hanging out so come come if you aren't registered also, educators, let, can you talk a little bit about the education conference? Because that's happening at conference, right? That's a part happening. Right. That happens. With, yep. That happens on the Thursday of convention um, before kind of all everything kind of kicks off in full earnest. But what we do is we run a training for educators on inclusive education. Um, and so there are I think we have four or five speakers. There might be four speakers and a panel and they come in and we run a training for teachers to kind of learn about some behavioral tactics that you can use in the classroom, understanding how they can use assist assistive technology, understanding what inclusion looks like, understanding what IEPs look like, basically trying to provide that baseline for teachers to understand and be able to say yes when someone approaches them about inclusion. Mm -hmm. That we, you know, I think that you have probably experienced this and a lot of families had that the initial instinct is to say no at first. And what we want to do is empower teachers to maybe not say yes immediately, but say, well, that's something I could try. <laughs> like may maybe that could work. Oh, I learned that this is a way that modified curriculum works. Maybe maybe that is not as hard as I mm -hmm. think it is. These are the resources that I already have. And so um, it's a full day conference. There are CEUs that we're going to attach to that um, for teachers that are there in Florida. Um, and so if you're a teacher that is coming to convention with your family, we'd, we'd love to have you there on Thursday. But we are also doing outreach to um, groups all across Florida, schools, education groups, et cetera, trying to make sure that we get as many teachers invited to that as possible. Um, I think last year we had 150 teachers attend, but um, 
at, at its largest, I think we had over 300 teachers be able to attend that when we were in Dallas. So we'd love to see, we'd love to see the attendance be on, a little bit on the mm -hmm. higher side um, when everything is said and done. Yeah, that's great. And what a neat thing to be able to focus on where you're at location-wise, like to really reach out. And that's, it's great too that convention goes all over the place, which we got to get up to the West Coast. I think we, we mentioned this together when we were in yeah. DC. So it's time. Okay, everyone, we got to get to the West Coast. <laughs> I think LA for sure. <laughs> okay, the educator piece, I, that's so, so important, so good. And then oh, I would love to talk to, would you say that this is the largest Down syndrome convention or conference globally? Is that fair to say? I I think so, but I'm not sure because I know that okay. there are I know there are a few other conferences that do happen. Um, I I think that there's one of similar size that kind of rotates through South America, and depending on where it okay. is, also has kind of like a similar number of people that attend. Um, but I mm -hmm. can't I can't I can't speak to which one is larger, so I'll say not sure. <laughs> okay, that yeah, that's fair. I've always I always say that when I talk about it, but I I should preface that with and i don't know <laughs> and, and, we, and we do say that we are the largest single disability convention that happens okay. in the united states we do know that that you know and, and a lot of these other larger conventions for disability are cross disability so you see you know like the abilities expos etc are much larger and a lot more people attend those um but it's for people with all kinds of um different disabilities and different access points of of kind of mm -hmm. how they're helping that makes a lot of sense and so then with that said all the other large Down syndrome organizations are also in attendance. I talk about the big five, but I know I'm leaving some out. And it's all so I would say NDSS, NDSC, Global, GGs, DSDN. And then there's a met there's a couple medical, some that are more medically leaning. What are some of the other bigger national organizations? Who did I miss? Yeah. So Lumind IDSC um, okay. is one of the research, they promote research um, and do some amazing work. And I'd say DSAIA, which is kind of the, um, like the trade group for Down syndrome associations all over the country. So there's a, they provide a really amazing resource for, you know, small groups that want to turn into actual organizations, um, get their 501c3 status, helping them identify that, or as they're growing, saying these are some programs that you can use. These are some ways that we've seen success and just kind of bringing a a, a kind of national community together to support those. Um, I know there's the, the Mosaic International Group. Um, there's, there's essentially like a coalition of group, Down syndrome groups that do all come together under the NIH banner. Um, and we meet twice a year. And we also meet at one of those two times as convention. Um, so they're also, they're also there. I, th I think those are the main players, but I'm sure I'm also forgetting some as well. Sure, sure. And the NIH is the National Institute of Health, right? Yes. Yeah, so, and we're very good at using acronyms in confusing ways. Yes, we are. <laughs> so thank you for clarifying that. I think it took me five or six years to figure out like NDSC, NDSS, DSDN. I, you know, that DS part, um, it makes sense, but it also can be a little bit tricky with the acronym world. <laughs> want to talk a little bit about the importance of bringing everyone together and our Down syndrome community working collaboratively. I'll say something from my vantage point and I am not I am not connected strongly to any one of those we'll call it the big eight or nine 10-ish <laughs> um, organizations 
are global organizations that are that are really pretty massive. Um, like a lot of people, volunteers, pretty decent sized staff, large annual budgets, doing work, incredible work for our community. I've also noticed in my Mason's fifteen. Um, so in my fifteen years in the space and as really advocating, really in the advocacy space the last decade, that there is. Um, I'm seeing a need for growth when it comes to co- being collaborative and that's happening, but it definitely hasn't always been the priority. Does that resonate with you at all? Like, do you yeah. see that at all? I, I definitely, you know, it, it, I have the luxury of not having, you know, having worked in the disability world, but not working in the Down syndrome world of being able to mm-hmm. come in with a unique perspective and without a lot of history. So I think, you know, for many people that, that work in, in our community, and it's great, um, their, their parents, they've had lived experiences, and they know all the organizations and all the players as a result of that. And so I had the luxury of being able to come in and essentially kind of hit the reset button for our organization from that perspective and just say that, you know, I don't have, there's no, you know, prior relationship baggage, whatever that looks like that, you know, if we want, if I want to see convention grow to something that has 10 or 20,000 people, NDSC is not going to be able to do that by ourselves. We're going to have mm. to do that through making sure people just like you for the first eight years hear about convention, right? Um, and as large as a microphone as we could possibly have, we're not going to get to every single parent. Um, and, and our goal is to make sure that we're providing a better world for people with Down syndrome. And so to do that is not to kind of promote ourselves, but that it's, you know, it's, it's very much the case of, and this is the case as I've seen it in the entire nonprofit sector is that we're, that it's not a zero sum game. And I think a lot of people view a lot of things very territorially and, um, and as a zero sum game because of that, but there are a lot of people that want to do amazing things. They want to volunteer with multiple organizations. They want to donate to multiple organizations. They want to promote multiple organizations. And so if we are promoting an openness to that internally amongst all of our groups, then I think that that can result um, in people viewing our community the same way and saying, okay, we're all, we're all in this together. And in the instances that we do all come together, really kind of rally behind those moments that, to saying that there there are, because we all don't approach all of our programs the same way, and that's okay too. But sure. in the moments that we do all come together and we say, this is this is worth your attention, right? This is worth us, that we all view this the same way. Um, we want there to be power in that. And we want there to be people to feel like it means something when we say that. Yeah, that's great. I can definitely see a shift, like I said, in the last couple of years. And, well, you know, in all these things, it it is a trickle down from leadership, you know, and and I don't want to I don't want to get anybody. I don't want to get you in trouble for saying anything or me. But I <laughs> but um, I I've always felt like when I when I've been in spaces over the last decade or had that sense of a feeling of why is there like, are we competing for something here or like what they're just like that what's going on here because i would imagine i feel confident saying the end goal is a better world for people with down syndrome that's what everyone's after and like but everyone has their unique way of getting there which is not a bad thing that's great but it is how do we how do we act, um, act collaboratively as a, a larger down syndrome community and not competitively right like like you said it's not a zero-sum game me getting something doesn't mean you don't get something. It's not pie, right? Like that idea that this isn't 
a piece of pie. So I see, I see a shift in that. And I think it's, I think it's so important for Down syndrome community to come together to make a difference. How do you see that? And I, I'm assuming you agree because you've just said that we can agree. <laughs> I do. <laughs> to all that. <laughs> How do you see that the strength in those numbers, especially when it comes to policy and advocacy, like the the groups coming together? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a, a significant one that that especially for whether it's a state legislature or federally, um, you know, having a unified voice and, and groups being able to kind of have some clarity of, and, and when I say groups, let me clarify that, people that work on the Hill, other lobbying groups, other organizations, um, representatives and their staffs themselves, understanding who they can ask questions to, how they can get answers, that we are on the same page, that that it's, it's problematic when, if we give a different answer than somebody yeah. else because we haven't coordinated before that, then the, the basic instinct of a, of a staff member on the Hill is to just stop listening. It's not to research and figure out who is correct and identify that. They're, they're, at that moment, they just say, this is too much for us, we're gonna walk away from mm-hmm. that. And so that unified voice is a huge step in being able to do that and, you know, Strength in numbers, right? You know, when we look at what happened at the Down Syndrome Advocacy Conference where we met, um, it was an amazing event. We had 350 um, advocates that were there in attendance. I think there were 100 to 150 self-advocates that were there in attendance. That's fantastic. Now imagine the impact in a day at Capitol Hill where that is three times that or five times that or 10 times that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we already were getting, a, you know, there was a lot of attention and people kind of noticing us as we were going to different meetings. How do we escalate that? Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that together. You know, it, it's the um, what is the old adage? If you want to go fast, go alone. Um, but if you want to go far, you have to go mm, together. That's good. That's really good. Can you think of in your time at NDSC specific collaborative efforts that you've seen in the Down syndrome community that have made a big impact? Yeah, well, I, there was one in particular about I, I mean, I think one was during COVID. Um, a lot of the organizations came together and said, we need to get guidance out to everybody so they understand what vaccinations are, if they understand what prioritization looks like, making sure that if that's happening at a state level, that that can be prevented, um, that people with Down syndrome shouldn't be kind of second listed in terms of being able to get access to vaccines if that's what they want. Um, what information just about how COVID affects individuals with Down syndrome, making sure that that all was disseminated and done jointly. Um, I know NDSS, NDSC, Global, LuMind all came together um, to make sure that there were some really powerful resources that were put out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the other really great example of this was about a year ago, um, there was a trial or there was a a rule that was set by um, CMS. So uh, the organization that basically decides what you can I don't even, I'm trying to remember the commission for medical something. I I, I should know what CMS stands for, (laughs) but essentially they make decisions on how, what is eligible for Medicaid dollar spending. And so one of their rulings was that um, there weren't going to be people with Down syndrome allowed in a specific trial um, for an Alzheimer's drug. And so Mm -hmm. by leaving them out of that trial, it meant that if the trial moved forward. So, and this is still it, at the time, it still wasn't approved, right? But it, if the trial were to be approved, then people with Down syndrome would not have been approved for being able to to purchase that medication under Medicaid. Mm. And so, our we kind of came together as a community and said, this is something that we need to make sure isn't happening. That we either individual trials for people with Down syndrome are created, or people with Down syndrome are allowed to participate in these trials. So 
when the eligibility requirement comes up, you know, regardless of what we think about this medication, regardless of what we think about this trial, a preemptive exclusion from the start is not okay. Mm. And so we all came together and issued a joint action alert that I believe also came out from that same set of groups. So DSAIA, um, Global, LuMind, NDSS, and NDSC. And we all put out essentially action alerts to our communities and said, hey, you need to go. There's a specific process when they put rules out like that where you can comment. And so I, I, my understanding was that there were somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 comments um, that came in to this rule specifically about the exclusion piece. And as a result of that, they changed the rule. Wow. Um, and so that's an example where if we at NDSS have put that out. Maybe three or 400 people would have commented or I, we don't know how many it would have been. But the idea that you've seen all of our logos together on that action alert, that you might see it coming from a couple of different places in your inbox. Those are the things that make people say this probably is something that's really important. I mean, just go and, you know, the way we send those out is that the whole what you need to put in is almost already written for you. Mm -hmm. You just have to add something about your family. It's mostly a copy and paste. Try and make it as easy as we can. But if you see that and say, OK, this is pretty easy and I'm hearing from NDSS, NDSC and Global that I need to do this, um, you know, we think that led to a lot more people participating in the first place. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great one. The CMS is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Does that sound right? There you go. I'll, I almost had it. <laughs> I did a quick, I did a quick little Google search there. <laughs> I, I appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me today and our listeners here. Um, is there anything else that we've missed in this conversation that you would want to add about your, about what's going on at NDSC? Yeah, you know, the, I think the one thing that I would add is that we want to hear from folks about what is happening in their communities and to their families, um, you know, for their families, both good and bad. We want to hear those stories. We want to be able to share those for the, the bad things. We want to be able to help you provide resources, identify areas where advocacy needs to happen. Um, organizationally, we are committed to, you know, basically picking up the phone. So we, we don't have a voicemail system. If you call any, we, well, we do have a voicemail system, but <laughs> we have three people that answer the phone when you call. Um, and so if you need help or you need directed to a local group or you just need somebody to talk to, um, the three people that answer the phone for us, they're all parents. Um, you know, we've kind of set a rule that it's either got to be a sibling, a caregiver or a parent in that role for us. Um, we want someone to feel warm and welcome when they call in, but we want to hear from you. We want to know what you need. We want to know what you don't think we're doing well, what we do think we're doing well and we can do more of. Um, and we, you know, we want to grow our convention in the way that I talked about. And so we want to do that in an inclusive way. So, you know, as an example, this year we're having a grandparents recognition breakfast, you know, what, and we, we, the reason we're doing that is because we've heard from folks, you know, my grandparents were instrumental in my, <laughs> my family and my sanity yeah. over the first 10 years of my life or the first 10 years of my child's life. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we're recognizing them as well. Um, so other ways and places of things that, you know, the community wants to see or would like to see us try and work on, we'd love to hear from you. That's so great. What's the best way for them to get in touch? So NDSCcenter.org is our website and our phone number is the number is 1-800-232-NDSC or 6372. So 800-232-NDSC. 6372 call us in you can also submit and like a, a web form on that we've really kind of dedicated ourselves to making sure um that we get back to people i think our the, we, we get back to folks i think on average right now in about 30 to 45 minutes at least wow. so they know that they've, they've heard from us um so so that's a big part of what we're trying to do and um feel free to give us a call let us know what you're looking for um we'd love to hear from you 
I love that. I didn't know that that was there. That's so, so great. And listeners, we're going to have links to the phone number and the website and anything we've mentioned here that you would want to remember. We'll have links in our show notes. So it's right there on your phone. Really easy. You should be able to click it. Um, Jordan, thank you again for being on today. So grateful. And I'm excited. I'm going to see you in just a few weeks, really. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my blood pressure just went up there. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is airing in a little while. Like this is when we're recording this, you've got a couple of months, a uh, month. <laughs> from from the time this airs, well, I'll see you um, in a few weeks. Yeah, we're, we're really excited, and hopefully, we can. You I'm time. sure that there'll be some amazing content that that you can pick up while we're we're at convention too. So we're really excited. You'll be very there. good. We're going to take a break and be right back. Okay, time to wrap up this episode. Jordan Co., you are doing such amazing things and such a personable person. Grateful for the work that you're doing and your time with us today on the podcast. Listeners, head over to luckyfew.co. That's theluckyfew.co, not com, co. And you can use code podcast, all one word, podcast, and we will give you 10% off all narrative shifting gear. So you can do that right now. Get ready for the summer. Get ready for convention. You're going to need some kind of Down syndrome apparel at convention. So podcast is your code for 10% off at theluckyview.co. Josh Avis, thank you for editing this podcast. Ashley Fracolossi for producing it. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't done that already. Head to theluckyfewpodcast.com for show notes and everything we talked about today. We're going to have that link that you need to contact the National Down Syndrome Congress. Um, The phone number that they have there will be in that link. And make sure that you're following us on social media at the Lucky Few Pod. Listener, you are slaying it. You're doing such a good job. We are always here cheering you on. We love you so much and can't wait to be together for another episode next week. Until then, advocate on, friends. Friends.